This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. What is the world like today for the people who are frequently shocked, challenged and been at the forefront of changes that many see as outrageous? Are the rainbow people still changing their world for the better? I'm Malcolm Angus. Welcome to Outrageous, the program that investigates, supports and advocates for the rainbow people of New Zealand. Good day, listeners. This is Malcolm Angus once again with Outrageous on 105.4 FM. Today I have a guest that I um, tracked down having read an article in the online Guardian, and his name is Philip McKibben. Now, I um, am not aware that Philip McKibben is part of the rainbow community, but he is, in my mind, somebody who is worth talking to, worth listening to, worth thinking about, and the ideas he has, um, I think, need to be considered in New Zealand. And some of you might find them outrageous, which is why I've asked him to be on this program. Uh, welcome, Philip, to Outrageous. And as I said, I'm not necessarily counting you as part of the Rainbow community, which is where this program started, but I'm always happy to talk to people that I find um, may be outraging the sensibilities of others uh, in particular ways. Philip, I um, saw your article in The Guardian, online Guardian, and the quote that took my attention was, although I am critical of the protesters' requests, I believe farmers deserve love. We should ensure farmers support are supported and have access to the things they need. So on that um Quote, Philip, I'd like you to introduce yourself, um, first of all, in terms of uh, being a New Zealander, um, perhaps some part of your early life and the influences that uh, your life has had on you to get you to the point where you are today. Welcome, Philip. Kia ora, uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, so, yes, my name is Philip McKibben. I'm a writer. Uh, I am of Pākehā and Māori ancestry, so on uh, my dad's side, uh, English and Irish, and on my mum's side, uh, Scottish and Māori. And so uh, my Māori ancestors were from Kaitahu uh, and uh, the lower South Island and Rakihura, Stewart Island. Uh, growing up, I, I had a sense that I was always out of place. And when I think about uh, the influence of my upbringing on my writing. That's one of the things that I keep coming back to. Uh, and there are several reasons why I felt that way, I think, and why that continues to influence my writing. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, ways that I tend to think of that is in terms of uh, being between worlds, being between two worlds, so I grew up in South Auckland, uh, which compared to the rest of Auckland and compared to the rest of the country is in some ways uh, a very disadvantaged area. Um, it's, very, it's a very vibrant area and there are many vibrant communities within it, uh, but it is a lower socioeconomic area. And uh, being in that environment, I think, uh, shaped the way that I see the world. 
at the same time, I grew up, well, spent most of my childhood growing up at King's College, which is a uh, private school, uh, Decile 10 private school. So it's one of the wealthiest schools in the country, and it's situated in South Auckland, in Otahuhu, uh, so in the middle of South Auckland. And uh, it's sort of like a gated community, a very uh, privileged place. Um, and I spent my childhood living on the grounds because my dad is a teacher there, but also living outside of the grounds because for a while my mum was living in Mangere, not too far from the school. Uh, and also uh, when I was living with my dad, we weren't necessarily always living at the school. Uh, and so I went to primary school at Papatoitoi North uh, and Papatoitoi Intermediate uh, was my uh, intermediate school uh, before I went to King's College. And, you know, there's a massive contrast uh, there. How did the contrast affect you emotionally and intellectually? Uh, well, emotionally, I think I always felt out of place. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, especially as I got older, when I got to King's, I definitely felt like I had come from somewhere different to the other students. You know, a lot of those students had uh, either, for example, come from farming backgrounds, or rural backgrounds and been uh, brought in as boarders, uh, or they had come from uh, schools like King's Prep, so uh, primary and intermediate schools that uh, were of a similar character to King's, whereas uh, I had come from uh, Papatoitoi North, Papatoitoi Intermediate, um, which were uh, predominantly brown uh, and, yeah, just a very different character. And I think while I was at those schools, I felt out of place. Uh, and while I was at King's, I felt out of place. Um, but I think intellectually, or I like to think intellectually, that uh, that experience of being out of place has allowed me to appreciate diversity and difference and see things from multiple perspectives. And that's something that I've nurtured in myself. And, and now, you know, I think that's been... That's been quite a few years since I uh, was at, was in high school. Now I see that playing out in different ways. So as an adult, I've uh, reconnected with my Māori heritage, which wasn't something that was celebrated when I was younger and wasn't something that was even really acknowledged. Uh, and so I see myself navigating these two worlds, the Pākehā world, the Western world and the Māori world. Uh, but also a lot of my work uh, in recent years, a lot of my writing has... Uh, become concerned with non-human animals in the natural environment, but especially uh, animals, animal rights and so on. So, uh, you know, by and large in this country and this world, animals are persecuted. And I like to think that that ability to uh, connect across cultures and connect across worlds uh, enables me to, or gives me some insight into how we might uh, bring all of these various worlds together you haven't mentioned any siblings. Were you an only child? No, I wasn't. I wasn't an only child. So uh, I have quite a complicated family. Uh, I'm the oldest of six. Um, so there's me and uh, one of my sisters. Uh, we share the same parents. And then my parents separated and uh, each of them had two more children. So yeah, a very big, complicated family. And your sister, has she taken a similar path to you in... I, I guess, reigniting the Maori within the family? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Right. Uh, 
Um, so you've you came to realize at some point was it at the at the high school on your Maori heritage you came to be more thoughtful about that was that later than um, what was happening at the school was it part of the culture that you were living in to continue to ignore that part of your heritage at that time yeah I think there are there are a lot of reasons why that wasn't such a prominent thing. Uh, firstly, uh, my Māori whakapapa is on my mum's side. My Māori ancestry is on my mum's side. And I spent most of my childhood growing up with my dad uh, in my dad's house. And uh, at a certain point, my mum moved uh, to Wellington. Uh, and so we spent less time with her. So I think that played a role in it. I think going to King's Tower Māori, the Māori world, wasn't celebrated very much. Um, so there weren't really, you know, opportunities where it was where it was talked about or brought up. Uh, what prompted me, I guess, to reconnect was my pursuit of Te Reo Māori, the Māori language, and that happened uh, as an adult. Actually, after I after I uh, finished studying philosophy, I decided I wanted wanted to expose myself to new ideas, and so I enrolled AUT in uh, Te Reo Māori paper, and. You know, I was really taken with that and, and uh, really engaged by it. And at the same time, uh, I started working at Te Kupangahoa Māori, which is the Department of Māori Health at the University of Auckland, doing some research work on uh, Māori methodologies, so Māori uh, ways of doing research, Māori theory around research. And I was exposed to all of these ideas about decolonisation, whakapapa, uh, um, and so on. And, you know, I was becoming more and more open to the Māori world. And at the same time, I was spending a lot of time with my gran on my mum's side. And uh, that's the, you know, it's through our Māori ancestry comes through that line. Uh, And she was saying to me, oh, you know, Philip, you have Māori ancestry too. You have Māori ancestry too. And I was a little bit resistant to this because... I felt that I hadn't been, that my upbringing hadn't been very Māori. I don't look like like most people expect Māori people to look. I have very white skin and green eyes. Uh, I mean, if you met me on the street, you'd have very little reason to think that I was anything but Pākehā. Um, but Gran, you know, was saying that, uh, you know, Philip, you have Māori ancestry too. And I think... You know, it was it was a it was a lot of things that sort of that changed my perspective. But initially, when she was saying that to me, I was thinking, you know, it would be it would be dishonest of me to claim to be Maori because you know, I don't I you know I wasn't brought up speaking the language. I you know have have been learning it as an adult. I don't look Maori. Um, you know, I had hadn't spent a whole lot of time on Marae and so on. Um, but it was also that exposure to Te Reo Māori, to the language, and uh, also to all of these ideas that I was coming across and, and, and reading and engaging with this Māori theory that helped me to see that, um, you know, you can be more than just one thing. And this idea that we are uh, one or the other, Māori or Pākehā, uh, or that, you know, we can be divided up into uh, percentages of something, uh, and that once you get to a certain small percentage, you know, you're not that thing. It's a very uh, colonising way of looking at the world, I think. Uh, and so 
you know, there was sort of this switch and where it had been, uh, for me, quite a, uh, a dishonest suggestion to, to claim that I am Māori, uh, it changed and it became, it felt dishonest not to, not to admit or not to embrace the fact that I am also Māori. Mm. Uh, and so I went on, uh, I went on that journey, I'm still on that journey, but uh, yeah, it's seen me reconnecting with my with my iwi, Kaitahu, uh, and you know, I now regularly go down to the South Island. I'm involved in Kopapa down there, and up here uh, there in Auckland, where I live. So uh, the South Island, and Kaitahu. particularly Stewart Island, is where your Maori ancestry um, is centred. Is that? Correct? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah. uh, I have three marae. So one is in Karitani, which is not far from where you are, I believe. Um, Another is Waihopai, uh, so in, in the cargo, and there's another one at uh, Colic Bay, Orakaparima. Uh, so, yeah, that's where my three marae are located. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but my Māori ancestors also lived on Stewart Island for a while. So, yeah, there's that connection as well. Uh, what has it been like meeting the, the family that the, the Maori families that you are related to, have you had that opportunity to, to, I suppose um, we're talking about cousins. Is that is that the right family lineage to be talking about? Um, cousins, uncles, aunts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think I think that is an appropriate way to. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in Te Reo Māori, I, w- I would talk about whanaunga, um, relatives, relations, it's a, and it's yeah. a very encompassing term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I have made a lot of those connections mm. uh, and continue to do so, and it has been a really positive, affirming experience. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been challenging, <laughs> obviously, right. and, par- and partly because, you know, in some ways it feels like within... Within my family, my immediate family, I've sort of been doing this uh, a little bit on my own. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, I'm the one with interest in it. Um, although I have had a lot of support from my grand. Uh, but yeah, I have, I have built up those relationships. A, a couple of years ago, I went uh, on a road trip to visit my three marae, and we also went to uh, Stuart Island as well with. Um, Two of my whanaunga, Rohina and Demelza. Uh, and yeah, that was a beautiful trip. And I actually met Rohina uh, through uh, a Māori language co-papa that we were both involved in. And we realised we were, we, we were from the same marae. And yeah, that relationship has developed. And that has been a really beautiful thing. And that has allowed, to, allowed me to make further connections mm. and will, will go into the future, I think. Now, the, you eventually ended up at university and you studied philosophy, uh, am I correct? Or philosophy yes, came yes, later in your studies. Um, the politics of love is one of the works that you authored um, with Max Harris. Now, there's a Max Harris who is now dead in Australia but had an equally um, important um, role in Australian life. This is a much younger Max Harris, not related, I take it, um, that you worked with. Uh, The document I've got says in 2000, 
2015, you and Max Harris um, sketched the politics of love. Um, Tell me how that came to fruition. Um, Was it something that you worked on while you were studying philosophy or was it as a result of your philosophical thinking? Hmm. So I, Max and I started uh, working on the politics of love after after I finished studying philosophy. Um, and yeah, at the time, so we wrote, so what happened was we wrote an article together uh, called The Politics of Love. Uh, and it was a, yeah, an article just imagining the possibility of a politics of love. And it came about because Max had a blog uh, and he was writing some uh, short articles on political concepts. So he was studying at University of Oxford at this time. Uh, so he was in the UK, uh, but we had been friends for quite a while uh, before that. And, yeah, he was writing these articles. And I was reading them every now and then, and he wrote one about values, I believe, in progressive politics and I wrote to him and I said, oh, you know, like that article, I'd be interested in, in collaborating on on something with you. Uh, and we talked about this for a while and eventually we came, came up with the idea of writing about the politics of love, uh, thinking about how love might inform politics. And, yeah, the article was what resulted from that. And, yeah, uh, my thinking on the politics of love, and I think Max is thinking as well, although I can't speak for him, uh, has, you know, has developed quite a bit since we wrote that article. Uh, that was, yeah, as you mentioned, in 2015. Uh, but, yeah, uh, that's the, sort the, of where it began. The, um, the introduction you've, you've been through to bring us to this point um, is is one of the things I wanted to explore with you, but we also need to explore the articles you've been writing, your other thoughts, your poetry, and um, unfortunately we only have 26 minutes of interview time. So though we've still got a few minutes to go, and I'm not just going to say goodbye now, um, would you be able to have another talk with me next week? Absolutely. Fantastic. All right, so can I just come back to your Maori heritage and the politics of love? Do you see... Influences from the Maori culture, your Maori learning, um, that resonate with this idea of the politics of love that you and Max Harris have been thinking about and writing about, and which now I think has become part of um, your ongoing philosophy. You want to share that with others. You want others to pick up on it. What is the influence of Maori on that that you can um, tell yeah, the listeners? Been, it's had a huge, a huge influence, and you know, it's since 2015, a little bit after that, perhaps uh, that I've really started to reconnect with my with my Maori side, and so that reconnection and that engagement with the language and uh, the intellectual tradition underpinning it has. Uh, significantly informed the politics of love as I've been developing it. And uh, there are numerous things I could point to. For example, uh, the understanding of love that uh, I have sort of arrived at uh, has been hugely influenced by the Māori notion of aroha. 
uh, which is a very expansive understanding of love. Uh, you know, you aroha, you can have aroha for other people, but also for the land, uh, for places, uh, for uh, non-human animals in the natural environment. Uh, so, yeah, there's that influence. I think the focus on values, the politics of love is a values-based politics. So we talk about values such as um, compassion, responsibility, trust, understanding. Uh, I think that owes a lot to te ao Māori. Uh, in te ao Māori, the Māori world, we talk a lot, uh, very explicitly, about values, manaakitanga, taking care of each other, hosting each other, whanaungatanga, uh, relationships, tiakitanga, uh, looking after uh, the natural world. And that naming of values, uh, which is a very Māori thing to do, has uh, become an integral part of the politics of love. Uh, but there are other, other um, uh, influences, as well, influences as well, and one that I come back to is uh, the notion of spiralling discourse, um, so uh, it's a very Māori thing, I think, to think to talk around topics and to, to come to circle around them and to come back to certain aspects and, and so on. And that has influenced the way that I have thought about how I've been engaging with the politics of love and how I've been expressing it, which is largely through um, articles and, and presentations. And so, you know, I haven't pretended at all to have any any of the answers or all of the answers uh you know at any point um rather it's a you know sort of coming back around and examining the the topic from different different perspectives and you know each time getting getting closer to what the politics of love can be uh i think yeah all right. On that, on, that, on that note, we're going to end today's conversation because, as I said, um, we we have a limit of time. Um, listeners, my guest today is Mr. Philip McKibben, um, and I was struck by an article he wrote in the online Guardian, uh, which is what caused me to uh, invite him to come on the show. This is Malcolm Angus and Philip is coming back again next week to continue this conversation and um, I'm going to push him more on his statement that he made about the farmers and we're going to because that's where I started this interview. Um, thank you Philip for this discussion today. Um, as I uh, knew beforehand um, it was going to take more than one interview to um, get you to share everything that you have thought about and what you're trying to do at the moment. So listeners You've been listening to The Outrageous Show with Malcolm Angus on OAR 105.4 FM and we'll be back again next week with Philip McKibben. And, Philip, you may just like to sign off to the listeners as well. Yes, thank you. Um, Okay, that's it for today and we'll talk to you next week. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.